Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm John Snow and this week's guest is the classics professor, Dame Mary Beard. Mary was a bright child who was bumped up a year at school and went on to study classics at Newnham College. After completing her PhD, Mary taught at King's College in London before returning to Cambridge, where she remained for nearly 40 years. During her long academic career, Mary has written many best-selling books, and when the 2008 book on Pompeii won the prestigious Wolfson History Prize, she became the star of her own BBC television programme, the first of many documentaries in which her passion for the past is infectious and which has helped raise her status to that of a national treasure. Mary's latest series is for BBC Radio 4. It's called Being Roman and looks at six intriguing individuals who lived in the heyday of imperial power. Let's find out more. Well, firstly, Mary, thank you very much indeed for joining us. You've said that you owe your career to a visit to the British Museum. Can you tell me about the thunderbolt that kick-started your lifelong love of history? Well, I was five, and we lived in rural Shropshire. And my mum, who was the village schoolmistress, thought it was time I saw the capital so we went down to London. And one of the places we went was the British Museum. And at that stage, I was dead interested in the ancient Egyptians because, you know, like every kid, mummies and all that kind of stuff. And uh, my mum said, after we'd seen the mummies, dead mummies, that we should go and look at the Egyptian Everyday Life Gallery, which we did. And she pointed out to me, she said, oh, look, at the back of this case there's a piece of Egyptian cake, you know, preserved 3,000-year-old cake. Now, back in 1960, which is when it was, museums were not child-friendly and I could not see this piece of Egyptian cake. And she tried to pick me up so that I could see at the back of the case 
bit of cake. She was laden with bags and it was very inconvenient. A guy at this minute walks past and says, was I trying to look at something? And I say, yeah, I'm looking, I want to look at that bit of cake, right? And he must have been a curator because he fetched out of his pocket a bunch of keys. He opened the case. He got the cake out and held it in front of my very nose. And that was a life-changing moment. That was a thunderbolt moment. It's um, incredible. And it's so vivid in your mind. And this is a few years on. <laughs> it's, it's more than 60 years on. And it was both exciting because of getting close to the cake. But you know, I thought... You know, as the years went by, and I don't think I thought this at the time, but there was also a moral in it and a message, and it was about, you know, opening cases and access to the past and the idea that people will open cases for you and they will help you to see. And it's been a bit of a sort of talisman for me as mm. I've gone on, you know, and I think sometimes I think of that guy and I think, well, I hope I open cases, you know, different mm. way, but that's what I think I want to do. And so it marked me. Well, there's no doubt you do. <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> Your studies led you into the Greco-Roman <laughs> rather than the Egyptian world. Yeah. Was this because you discovered an early aptitude for those languages in school or what? Well, we didn't do hieroglyphs in school, <laughs> so... <laughs> no. um, we could have. You might have been living in another age. Uh, yeah. And I did, I was at a very traditional girls' school. We did Latin and then Greek. And I found I was good at them. And I guess most kids get to like what they're good at. Uh, and so it becomes self-reinforcing. But it also, you know, went together with the idea that, exciting as the Egyptians were, the Romans were under our feet. Mm. No, the Egyptians were exciting, but a bit remote. Hmm. And The Romans had been here. <laughs> our local museum was full, not with Egyptian cake. Yeah. It was full of tombstones of Roman soldiers and Roman pottery. And so it felt very immediate. Hmm. And, and I think that's what what did it. And I think you know, I, I did start to get interested in the literature and the idea, the idea of writing, surviving, that kind of thing. But I think it was the proximity, really. How old were you when you went on your first archaeological dig? I mean, did this extracurricular activity help determine your career path? Well, it was extracurricular in all kinds of ways, <laughs> I do bet. I have to say. Um, back then, you know, we're now talking late 60s, early 70s. You know, I was 15 and 15-year-olds could show up to the local archaeological society and dig the local Roman villa. You know, archaeology has become much more professionalised since, and I don't think there are many 15-year-olds who now would be allowed to do that. Mm. But I was, and, you know, that was a bit of a cake moment too because I think, you know, you dig up the past literally and, you know, you find, OK, it's a cruddy bit of pottery, but you're the first person for 2,000 years to have touched that bit of pottery. And mm. I think that's exciting. And you're seeing, you know, I've talked a bit about the you know the past under your feet. Well, actually, digging that past up adds another level to that. That's, mm. that's very exciting. Uh, you know, I ought to admit, I mean, you said extracurricular activity. I was a more or less only child. I had a much older half-brother and... You know, as things went on, you know, I would go for 
two or three weeks in the summer to do full-time residential under-canvas digging. Fantastic. And it was... It At what was, sort of age? That must have been 16, 17, wow. 17. That was pretty good. And but, you were obviously with lots of other enthusiasts of the same... Uh, yes, but they were also enthusiasts for the pub underage in the <laughs> evening. My mum and dad thought I was doing something frightfully, you know, yeah, high-minded. Yeah, Mary is on an archaeological excavation, and indeed Mary was, but Mary was also having a jolly good time you know, in the evening, and it was sort of quite exciting in many different ways. <laughs> and how quickly did you sort of learn to be protective of what you were digging up? I think I learned to be protective, but also open with it. I mean, I think there is quite an issue, which I don't think I've still resolved, and I certainly hadn't resolved back then, of how carefully you have to treat the past. I mean, I think we've perhaps crossed the line a bit, and we're perhaps a bit overprotective of... Um, really? I think so. So we could have learnt more if we'd been a little more risk-averse. I think so. I mean, look, you go to Rome yeah. now, and, you know, what's exciting about the city of Rome is partly that people are sitting, having their lunches, sitting on a column capital. You know, it doesn't hurt the column capital, no. really. And it's We're not allowed anywhere near it. <laughs> we're not allowed anywhere near it. And I think it's a, it's a very, very delicate balance between trashing the past, which, of course, I don't want to do, and letting people feel that they can enjoy it and touch it and that it sort of belongs to them in a way. So I think that's a very tricky question, honestly. I'm, I'm, not, you know, I'm not a great fan of blue gloves, except when they're absolutely necessary. Whether you knew it or not, your pathway was already forming itself. You studied classics at university and there's been much debate about the value of different degrees with the Prime Minister's push for STEM subjects. Why would you encourage a student to enrol for a classics degree? What skills does this discipline really demand? Well, I certainly wouldn't want to knock STEM subjects. I think that all subjects have got fantastic usefulness and the more we encourage kids to go into what they're interested in and allow them to be interested, I think, the better. But I think the humanities and classics perhaps in particular have got to learn to be a bit more forceful about what it is they teach someone to do and and why it isn't why it's not just the icing on the cake i mean you'll find people like the prime minister they don't hate classics mm. they just don't think they want to pay for it right mm. um and if you have that kind of attitude then the subject with us mm. and what i try to say now is look there are many arguments. You know, you can talk about how important it is, I think, to understand Western culture. If you, you know, you need to understand Virgil and you need to understand Homer. Otherwise, you can't understand, you know, James Joyce and so on. I, I, I can do those arguments. But I think there are, there are really bigger arguments at, at stake here. And, you know, I think the bottom line is what does classics or philosophy or history teach you? What does it actually teach you to do? Not what's it about. What skills do you come out with? And I think the biggest skill you come out with is the ability to argue responsibly and acutely in response to questions that have no right answers. You know, I think. Very neat, yeah. And if you then push that out a bit and you say, what does democracy depend upon? Well, democracy actually 
depends on people being able to argue responsibly and acutely to questions that don't have right answers. And I think fundamentally, humanities subjects, classics included, are absolutely part of the bedrock of us being able to have a functioning democracy. And if you want an example of how that can go wrong, well, you need only, I think, look at some of the outraged arguments on social media to see what happens if you don't know how to argue about that kind of question. How did you fare when you first started out lecturing? Did teaching come naturally to you or did you have to learn how to share your passion engagingly? Oh, I think I was pretty rubbish when I started out first. I think I was. Because I think that I got the impression, I think many young lecturers and teachers get the impression, that there's a sort of right way to do it and that there is a lecturing style that you should adopt and there is a, a model. And it's, I think it's a, it tends to be a very male lecturing style. And I think I tried to copy that. And, I, you know, I said I was rubbish. I don't think I was really rubbish. But I, what I was doing was sort of pretending to do it. I did, my, you know, my heart wasn't in what I was saying. I was doing. I was an actor. I was a performer, an actor. And it took me, I think, 10, 15 years before I thought, look, come on, say what you want to say <laughs> in the way that you want to say it, right? And you know, Can you do that with history? Yes. You know, you say, look... Isn't not, the story it, in charge? It's, <laughs> no, it, it's your conversation with the story that is what makes the difference. So just saying, look, I find this a bit silly, don't you? Or I'm not interested in that, but I am interested in this. Or, you know, it's telling students the cake story, really. It's about saying, I think that if you go to Pompeii, just look at those cart ruts in the street. Now, actually, they're totally ordinary, but there is something really important about that. That is where an ancient cart made those marks. And, you know, you can actually follow that up. Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, you can say, hey, do you know, you've got a one-way street here because you can see that two carts can't pass. And, you know, what I find fun always is taking a little thing, a little mark an insignificant object and saying, look, you can go outwards from that. You can make this object speak and you can make it speak to big questions. Like in Pompeii, how did the city run itself? How did you manage the traffic? What did managing the traffic imply about how the city was organised, etc., etc.? But it took me a long time, as I say, 10, 15 years. That's really intriguing. Yeah. And, you know, I suppose I'd been taught to say, Morning, ladies and gentlemen. There are three things I want to argue this morning when we consider the origins of the Peloponnesian War, etc. And, you know, it was probably quite good in its way, but it just wasn't me. No. And I think it was learning that I could just, I could be me and still teach. I feel really rather ill done by. I feel (laughs) I would have really benefited from that sort of conversation. But I never had it. No. Never from a teacher. They were too risk-averse. Teachers are taught to be risk-averse. They're also taught to have a checklist of what a good lecture is. How have you argued? Have you laid out the questions you're going to be asking in advance? And then have you repeated the answers at the end, etc., etc.? You know, it's all very well-intentioned, but it's it's not a conversation. In hearing you talk... It's absolutely natural that you should have moved into television. <laughs> yeah, I, no, no, seriously. 
I suppose in a way that's true. Because yeah. actually television is best when it's simple. Yeah. And that's what yeah. you're kind of illustrating. Yeah. And when you moved into television and, and into the public eye, which came later in your career. Much later, much later. Did you hold any ambition to reach a bigger audience or was it something you had to be persuaded to do? <laughs> I had to be persuaded to do it. It came after I'd written my book on Pompeii. When you say you had to be persuaded, was that because you thought it was a bit of a tin pot job? No, I had no disdain for telly, but I thought that it would take so long. You know, I, mm. what I knew from some of my friends that had done telly is that it was immensely time-consuming mm. and you spent hours and hours standing around doing nothing while the camera people took pictures of birds. And, you know, all that is true. It does. Mm. Indeed it does. <laughs> I mean, and I thought, I don't have the patience for this. But I was persuaded, in fact, by the person who was then controller of BBC Two, Janice Hadlow, who had read my Pompeii book on holiday and thought that that would make a good TV programme and was also looking at that time for real historians to present rather than presenters to present history. That's fascinating because it wasn't you searching for a bigger audience. It was no. somebody else yeah, wanting to right. inflict you on a bigger audience. That's right. Uh, first of all, I kind of said, mm, I'm not sure this is really for me. I'm not sure I've got the time. And did you look down on television anyway? No. Look, I watch it. You know, <laughs> you can't be that hypocritical. Um, but I think the point was, well, no, I think it was a simple point that I knew that it was very time-consuming. And what Janice was saying was that, you know, she was looking for proper history. She was a historian. She was looking for proper history on telly. She also was looking for, you know, women who were perhaps over 30 to do a bit of presenting on telly. And when I said I didn't think that I'd really got the time, she turned to me and she was brilliant. She said, look, I've read things you've written where you say you know, it's fine to be a crusty old bloke with wrinkles and grey hair, John. Yes, you know, it's fine to be that on telly, but you can't be a crusty old woman over... Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Having enjoyed the crusty old man, I must say. I'm, I'm relieved to hear it. <laughs> and she said, look... You've complained about this. I'm now saying, come and do a television programme, you know, be your age on telly and you're not going to say no to me because that would be deeply, deeply self-contradictory. And at that point, I was utterly snookered because I indeed had said that women of my age didn't get a look in telly and all the rest. And I had complained. And she was absolutely right. I was now getting an opportunity on a plate to do it and I wasn't going to turn it down. But there are drawbacks to being opinionated and in the public eye. Have you ever missed your earlier academic anonymity? Or is it there's more joy to be found in connecting with your audience? Look, it's, On social media in particular? I, I mean, I think that there is fun. And more than fun, there's pleasure, real deep pleasure, if you do my kind of subject, if you hmm. spent your life working on things 2,000 years ago, it's a privilege, actually, to share that with, you know, more than 100 people in the room. That has been exciting. You're right to say, look, when social media started out or when I started out on social media, it takes a bit of time to learn how to manage it. And I think that, you know, what, 10 years ago, 
I perhaps didn't have a very acute view of how to choose the battles I wanted to fight on social media. I think now I'm rather better at thinking I know where I'm going to plunge in, I know where I want to make a contribution, you know, and sometimes it's no bad thing just to shut up. Mm -hmm. And it takes you a long time to learn that, I think. Yes, knowing when to shut up is that's a big one. Yeah. You do not have an obligation to make a pronouncement on everything. <laughs> Sometimes you can just think it. You're drawn to the experience of everyday life. Is this because this part of history is sometimes neglected in favour of the classical world's greatest hits? Or is it the ordinary which genuinely excites you? I think that I want to put the ordinary together with the greatest hits. You know, I wouldn't be a classicist if I wanted to knock the greatest hits. But I do think that if you want to get people engaged with antiquity, one of the best places to start is in the ordinary. You know, it's, it's in the lavatories at Pompeii. It's bits of the ancient world where we can begin to see our own experience, not mirrored, but reflected, I think, in a way. It's, you know, it's, it's slightly distorted reflection. And I think that, that that doesn't stop there. And that's why I say that the greatest hits go goes together with the ordinary. I mean, the art really is, or the pleasure is for me, linking up the ordinary and the big picture. Well, I guess one of the best examples is the passion that you capture brilliantly on screen when you sit on a communal toilet or yeah. delight at the humour in a painting. Yeah. Do you relish finding the fun? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, look, partly I think you can be too reverential about the past, but you know, I think that you don't have to treat it all as if it is absolutely stony-faced serious. You know, sometimes it's funny. Sometimes you can have a laugh about it. Sometimes you can see yourself sort of there or not there. And sometimes it is truly kind of revelatory about the connections that you can make. I'll, I'll give you a, a very female example, but one of the things we did when we were doing Pompeii is not only the labs and things like that, but we went and we looked at ancient medical instruments that have been found at Pompeii, and we found some gynaecological instruments which look for all the world like what you would now see on the gynaecologist's layout of instruments. And we had great fun demonstrating how they worked. This uh, is what sets you apart, you know. You <laughs> have fun with your subject. Yes. You're not supposed to have fun no, with yes. your subject. You're an academic, for goodness sake. No, and it was very good fun, but I've just been in America and I was at a party and a doctor came up to me, a female doctor who's a gynaecologist, and she said, do you know what I do when I'm talking to my patients, when I'm getting a, a speculum out? I talk about you and Pompeii. How amazing. <laughs> and, you know, I thought... There's a wonderful example of using the image of the past. So I think we oughtn't to be frightened of the past. We ought to push it around and exploit it and explore it. And I think there's a responsibility that you have to it, not to willfully misrepresent. Sure. But I think we're the people who are speaking here and we have to find a way of speaking about the past that suits us. But this passion that you display does sort of set you apart from... So much of history, which is so drab. 
I think that's its image. I'm not 100% sure that it's a fair image. I think there are quite a lot of people who are enjoying letting the past speak a bit. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, I know what you mean. And I think that fun's an important part of learning. It's high fibre fun. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your new Radio 4 series, Being Roman, brings us Six very different stories brought to life through first-hand accounts. Can you introduce our cast of characters? Uh, we have a very surprising cast of characters because one of the things we're wanting to dispel is the idea that all Romans are sort of the same. Mm. You know, posh, rich, white men wearing togas. And so we have one of those. We have the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, who's a posh, rich white man wearing a toga. Um, but we also have people who I think don't spring to mind instantly when you think Roman. So we have got a celebrity doctor, a kind of Michael Mosley of the ancient <laughs> world, a guy called Galen. He existed. He existed. He wrote in Greek. He came from the Eastern Mediterranean and he was a doctor in Rome, but he wrote in Greek. Let me tell you that 10% of all the surviving ancient Greek literature is by Galen. Good Lord. Roll over Homer, Thucydides, Plato, Euripides. And to my shame, I hadn't heard of it. No. 10% of everything that exists. Everything that now exists, yeah. Wow. Volumes of it, volumes. Some of it survives because it was translated into Arabic, because he was really important in Islamic medicine. And so we're introducing you to one of the most famous figures of the ancient world that you never heard of, which is Galen. We have a wonderful, feisty woman whose name we don't actually know. She's normally called Turia for very complicated reasons, who lived through the civil wars in the first century BCE in Rome, whose husband, when she died, put up an absolutely vast tombstone to her, telling her life story. <laughs> and it goes from how she fought back when both her parents had been murdered, how she looked after the husband when he had to go into exile during the Civil War. And then it gets quite strangely and affectingly personal because it talks about how they couldn't have kids 
and they'd wanted children, they couldn't have them, and how she'd offered to divorce him so that he could marry somebody else and have children. It's lines and lines and lines of it telling the story of somebody's wife. Now, okay, it's not in the wife's words, it's written by the husband, but we tend to say, oh, we don't know about women in the ancient world. Yes, we do. You just need to know where to look for it. So there's her. Just before you go any further, how do we access that? Is it possible for people to read it? Yeah, when the radio programmes come out, we'll be putting where you can find the primary data. It is translated. You can get it in the original Latin and translation in many places, including online. And we'll make sure that people can go to the original stuff. You know, and then to add to those, there's the little boy poet, Mm. aged 11, who competed in Rome at the end of the first century CE, competed in Rome in a grown-up poetry competition, in a Greek poetry competition, and he didn't win, but he was highly commended and then died of hard work, his parents said. They put up a tombstone to him and they inscribed on his tombstone the poem that he recited at the competition. Amazing. Well, you're setting out some wonderfully... Amazing stuff. But then when it comes to Marcus Aurelius, who opens the series, an emperor famous for philosophical meditations that still sell today, you are not a huge fan. You think his writing is banal. Well, I'm a great fan of Marcus Aurelius. I'm Mm. not a fan of his meditations. His meditations are his philosophical notes and jottings. We don't quite know when or how or where he composed them, but they were made available publicly, copied and recopied in the ancient world and published later in book form. And Marcus Aurelius's meditations are bestsellers. They sell more than Mary Beard by quite a long way. And Really? <laughs> partly. You're a bestseller anyway. I think, well, Marcus Aurelius is a bestseller. And he, uh, you know, I think I feel quite pleased, even though I think the meditations have an undeserved reputation for being profound. I think it's quite nice that a Roman emperor can still be top of the charts. Mm, It's very good. But what we do in the programme is we're not so interested in the meditations, which I do think are a bit banal self-help, really. Um, you know, when you get up in the morning, make sure you think what to do that day. You know, oh, yeah. um, Deep stuff. <laughs> but what people don't often realise is that letters survive between Marcus Aurelius and his tutor when he was much younger than when he wrote the meditations. And there are letters backwards and forwards from Marcus to Fronto, the guy who was teaching him language and rhetoric. And those are an absolute window into a relationship between the older teacher and the young, slightly neurotic guy who was going to And are they published today? They are. You can also get these. They survive, first of all, in manuscript form, but republish. And you can read them and they talk about everything. So if we Google Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius and Fronto, letters of Fronto, and you will be taken. You can do it online. Amazing. Marcus Aurelius also features in your book, Emperor of Rome. Given that you're known for your bottom-up take on history, why did you choose to look upwards? Hmm. (laughs) Well, I think in a funny way, by looking upwards, you can sometimes look downwards at the same time. Or for me, I'm interested in what it was like to be a Roman emperor. I am interested in that. But I'm also interested in the way that emperors give you a lens 
actually, and perhaps paradoxically, onto the ordinary people in the ancient world. And they do that in two ways, really. Partly they do it because emperors have a staff. There is no such thing as a one-man ruler. We call them one-man rulers, but in fact they are ruling with an enormous number of other people supporting them. And but what checks were there on their powers? Daggers. You know, Daggers. murder. 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 Oh, are you serious? <laughs> well, I'm afraid, you know, the ancient world wasn't a very nice place and murder was the ultimate way of solving any problem in the ancient world, I'm afraid. So the corridors of power were bloodstained. Most corridors in the ancient world were pretty bloodstained. But I think that I I like exploring these guys because we know quite a lot about them. But I like exploring the people who did their hair or carried their handbags or washed their table napkins. And actually, you can do that. You can see the little epitaphs, for example, of the people who provided the infrastructure for the emperor to be emperor. And then, you know, wonderful ones. The the masseur of the emperor, the doctors, the secretaries, all those kind of people. And so you start to see that the emperor is part of a society that you can begin to explore, not just through the image of the emperor himself, but through all the people who made the emperor possible. And the palace, the Roman palace, is a is a world... It was a teeming little city, actually, with ordinary people whose lives you can begin to recapture. What about women who prevailed? There are quite a lot of women in my story, as mm-hmm. you'd imagine. <laughs> um, I think that there is a bit of a stereotype, clichéd stereotype, of the imperial woman, the wife of the emperor, and... A, Livia, who is married to Augustus, and there's a there is a, a sense that you often read that they were scheming behind the scenes, that they were the power, they were manipulating. And I think in part perhaps they were, and mm. I try to explore that image mm. in the book. I think there's another side to it though. I mean I'm not saying that the wives of the emperors weren't powerful because to some extent, anybody who could whisper things in the ear of the emperor was. Mm. You know, they had influence. But I do wonder about the, you know, there's the manipulator mm. image. Mm. Because I think, you know, even now, women are a very useful mechanism for explaining why men mess up, aren't they? You know, yeah. why did he do that? You know, well... That was because it was Livia's idea. We still do it, don't we? We, you know, we look at the COVID inquiry. Why did Boris Johnson do that? Well, it was Carrie that said, you know, there is this kind of chercher la femme and blame her aspect to the way we talk about women that I think that you see in antiquity and you see now. We grew up with only one woman we ever heard of, and that was <laughs> Bodicea. Yes. Why did she prevail? <laughs> because she provided for the Brits a wonderfully dramatic, romantic image of independence and, you know, make Britain great again kind of Mm. uh, image. You know, in fact... A pre-Thatcher Thatcher. Thatcher. In a way, she was a pre-Thatcher Thatcher. Thatcher. She was actually, I have to say, I'm no admirer of Thatcher, but Boadicea, Boudicca, was a lot less successful (laughs) than Thatcher. And, uh, you know, of course, we see her and we see her glamour, 
through the eyes of the Roman writers who wrote her up in sort of terror, but also they were very pleased that they'd managed to put her down. So she becomes a kind of tragic failure. And the other thing is we love the statue on the embankment. That's how we know Boudicca. There she is in her chariot with its scythes on. But the dominant force of the period really was one where emperors were autocrats. It was a period of one man rule and all the rest of it, as we've said. And I'm, I'm just wondering, what checks were there? On their powers? Well, very few. Just the daggers that you mentioned? It is the daggers. It's also the emperor balances on a tightrope. And I think it's another facet of the emperor not being able to rule alone. The emperor needs the elite. He needs his servants and his waiters and his masters and all that. But he also needs the Roman elite to govern provinces, etc., etc., And that provides its own kind of check. The emperor cannot alienate the elite, mm. else he can't rule. And that's a sort of a compact. There's a kind of hidden compact about imperial rule, which is that the emperor has to get the balance right. So I think you've got two things. You've got, you know, ultimately, you've got daggers is the threat, assassination, and many emperors were assassinated. But you've also got the sense that the whole thing only works if everybody obeys the hidden rules about how to behave and how not to behave. And they go along with them. By Mm. and large, they go along with those rules. You've said that ancient Rome isn't relevant to current concerns, but it can make us see our own world differently. What, what new perspectives on politics and power did this book give you? Well, I think that when I say ancient Rome isn't relevant, I mean, you can't find the answers for us in what the Romans did. You know, you can't say whether Donald Trump is like a Roman emperor or not. <laughs> if you did say that, what what would be the point? What it does... Pity the Roman Empire, if it was true. <laughs> well, yes. You know, people did always ask me during his presidency, which emperor is he most like? And I'd always say, well, I'm not sure that's a very helpful question or answer. But I think that at a slightly different level from that one-to-one equivalence. I think it helps you look at how you behave from a different standpoint. Mm. And I think that one thing that came out for me from working for such a long time now on the figure of the emperor was, again, the question of how they stayed in power. And there are all kinds of very obvious reasons. And there is force and there is violence. There are the daggers. But I also came to see that most people were prepared to sign up to the one-man rule project in the end. Now, we tend to think that one-man rule is always being challenged Hmm. by people who object to autocracy. And we have an image, I think, of the Roman empire in which there were noble senators who were trying to say, we want to have a democracy again, everybody. 
there's very little sign of that, actually. There's quite a lot of sign of people not liking individual emperors. That's hmm. true. You know, I don't want X on the throne. I'd rather Y or I'd rather me or whatever. There's very, very little sign that there were people really challenging the very nature of one-man rule itself. And I think that what we have to realise now, and I think this is a lesson that we indirectly draw from Rome, is that modern autocracies are also kept going by the fact that people go along with them. And our romantic vision of ourselves as being the kind of people who wouldn't go along with autocracy, I think, well, we need to challenge that a bit. And I think there is the uncomfortable fact that most people don't object to things. And, you know, if democracy were to be challenged in this country, the likelihood is that the number who would really stand up and be counted against that is probably small. And I think that is one thing that the Roman Empire sort of teaches you. Hmm. You've repeatedly said that you wouldn't want to have lived in Rome at that time. But if you could be transported to any moment to directly witness history... <laughs> Where would you? <laughs> oh, I know exactly where I'd go. I don't want to be present at a battle or a debate or a you know imperial death scene or whatever. I would just like to spend a day finding out what really went on in the Roman baths. I'd like to go <laughs> to a public bath building and see what was happening. Was it a gay scene? I've got no idea. Really? Do we have no clue? We have. Well, there was a lot of men with no clothes on, that's <laughs> for sure. Um, but that's different. I'd like to go and see. I'd like to go and see who was stoking the furnace, who was preening, who was, you know, eyeing people up. You've said that history is partly realizing how weird you're going to look in two thousand years' time. If you were casting a critical eye over our recent run of leaders, <laughs> God save us. <laughs> How would they fare? <laughs> Much like Roman emperors, I think. <laughs> there cannot have been one as bad as Trump. We just don't know. I mean, the, the problem is about Roman emperors is that it's very, very hard to see through the posthumous spin back to what they were actually like. You know, and I think it's, it is almost impossible to say whether the bad emperor Caligula, say, was as bad as he was painted or not as bad as he was painted. But I think that you can see some of the repeated ways that they are attacked, mm. often posthumously. I mean, I think that authenticity and lying is Forest. one thing. I mean, we at the moment, you know, are, are hearing about Booth. I think that it shows people, however, always wondering. I mean, people always wonder whether their leaders are speaking from the heart, whether their leaders are really telling it like it is. And that was certainly the case in ancient Rome. You know, one of Nero's, one of the ways that Nero was attacked was that he was always acting. Hmm. It was always an act. It was never real. And that, I think, is one of the things that we worry about. We worry about it in terms of, you know, telling real porkies, but we also worry about it in terms of spin and propaganda, don't we? I mean, mm. when we see Rishi Sunak filling up a little car from a petrol pump he clearly doesn't quite know how to use, <laughs> um, we think, is this all an act? Mm. And I think that there is that sense of how far is leadership a performance? 
And does Very it, interesting question. Is absolutely mm. central. Mm. And it was central to how we talk about leadership and it was central to how Romans discussed leadership. Some threads in politics are unbreakable. I think, is the guy telling you the truth and is he what he seems to be is an absolutely fundamental question. Last year, you retired from a 40-year-old academic career at Cambridge. Are you missing life at Newnham College yet, or are you far too busy? <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, this is an awful cliche, isn't it? What the retired always say, I'm far <laughs> too busy. I feel hugely grateful for the career that I had. I was a student at Newnham, and then after a time in London, I went back to be a fellow of Newnham. I have enormous affection for it, and I still sometimes go in there. It's it has a generous policy towards retirement. Some of my post ends up there. I still feel <laughs> part of it. I don't miss the job, though. It's pastures new. You know? I'm doing different things. What's coming up next? Is there going to be a new TV yeah. series? After the six programmes about Romans on the radio, we've got a one-off documentary about the Roman emperor. Sounds wonderful. Mary Beard, what a joy to talk with you. Thank you very, very much. It's really been interesting. Thank you, John. That was Professor Mary Beard. Her Radio 4 series is called Being Roman, and there's a link to it in the episode description, as well as her new book, Emperor of Rome. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. Please subscribe to my podcast on your platform of choice and spread the word. Tell your friends. Goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.